Witness Docs from Stitcher. Previously on Ernie's Secret. Chaos has just broken out downtown. All right. Negro youths are smashing windows. All hell broke loose with these big placard holders that were used to break out windows of stores on Beale Street. And it went violent. And it was bloody violent. This is a big year. The Ohio Lottery's golden anniversary. 50 years of excitement, of growing jackpots and crossed fingers. 50 years of funding for schools, of changed lives and brightened days. 50 years of fun, and that is worth celebrating. So watch for can't-miss promotions, huge events, and new games that will make the Ohio Lottery's 50th year its biggest one yet. Learn more at funturns50.com. Saving money on everything for your projects. Now at Menards. We have it all for garden and landscaping essentials. Visit our outdoor garden center today and update your backyard space. Grid accents lattice panels have a timeless design with an innovative design that's simple to install and requires almost no maintenance. Save big on lattice panel options at Menards. View our entire selection of garden center products today on Menards.com. Save big money at Menards. It was supposed to be a peaceful, non-violent march. But the morning after, newspapers across the country told a very different story in their headlines. King's March produces riot in River City. 150 fires, 62 hurt, one dead. Martin Luther King's tactics challenged in Memphis. King leads demonstration. He flees as violence begins. Martin Luther King had led a demonstration through downtown Memphis that ended in violence. A riot had erupted from inside the march. Windows were smashed, stores looted. One person was killed by the police. By the time King returned home to Atlanta, he was a man in crisis. Martin came back home and was probably more depressed than I'd ever seen him. A close aide, Andrew Young, said that King feared his reputation was on the line. He was the leader of the nonviolent civil rights movement. But now, things had gone violent. King knew that he had to go back to Memphis, that he had to return to lead a peaceful march. But he wasn't getting much support from his inner circle at the Southern Christian Leadership Conference, the SCLC. They didn't want to get bogged down in Memphis. They were thinking about what was coming next, going back to Memphis, back to the sanitation workers' strike. That felt like moving backwards. They needed King to move forward to be thinking about the next huge protest that was in the works in Washington, D.C. But King was angry. He was frustrated with their lack of support. It's the only time he ever had a, even a short temper with us. He was very brusque with us. I want you to come with me to Memphis, Young recalls King telling him. King stormed out of the office, shouting, I feel so alone. He was tired. He was under attack by the media by the white leaders back in Memphis, and even by some people inside the movement. King made one more appeal. He said, look, you all have left me out there by myself. I'm not the one to bear this whole burden for the nation. He said, all of you need to carry your part. 
And in a way, he, he gave us permission to carry on without him. King's words were poignant, and it would turn out prophetic. But for now, the debate was over. They were headed back to Memphis. This is Unfinished, Ernie's Secret. I'm Wesley Lowry. King's return to Memphis was important for a couple of reasons. There was the promise he had made to Lizzie Payne, the mother of 16-year-old Larry Payne, a black boy who had been killed by the police during the chaotic Memphis March. But then there was the matter of King's national reputation. For months, King and other civil rights leaders had been planning a protest in Washington, D.C. They were going to bring thousands of poor people to live in tents on the National Mall. King was calling it the Poor People's Campaign. Its goals? Full employment, a guaranteed income, and decent housing for every American. We all remember Dr. King as a civil rights icon, but by the mid-1960s, King had another big and challenging dream, the redistribution of the nation's wealth. He wanted to force the government to deal with the issue of poverty, and he was calling it a new phase of the civil rights movement. In speech after speech, King preached that while the civil rights movement had won new voting rights and the desegregation of buses and lunch counters, as long as black people remained poor, they would never really be free. Now our struggle is for genuine equality, which means economic equality. For we know now that it isn't enough to integrate lunch counters. What does it profit a man to be able to eat at an integrated lunch counter if he doesn't earn enough money to buy a hamburger and a cup of coffee? This was a different Martin Luther King Jr., a more radical Dr. King. He was speaking out against the war in Vietnam. He was challenging American democracy and capitalism. But King knew that if his nonviolent struggle for economic justice was to succeed, he had to follow through on what he had started in Memphis. He had to lead a nonviolent demonstration there. In this episode, we're going to tell the story of King's final visit to Memphis. What happened on his return trip on April 3rd and April 4th, would forever shape the movement and the nation. And there for all of it was Ernest Withers, capturing images for the history books and intel for the FBI. It was a cloudy, cool day in Atlanta as Dr. King and his inner circle boarded a blue and white Eastern Airlines jet to Memphis. As if the tension wasn't high enough already, there was an announcement from the pilot saying, um, sorry, folk, but we have to ask you to disembark. That's Dorothy Cotton, the only woman on King's executive staff. We have had a bomb threat, and I need you to get off because we have to check the plane, sure that it's all clear and that we can go. After an hour, they were cleared to board the plane again. It was April 3rd, 1968. The past few days had been rough, but now that they had decided to go back to Memphis, Andrew Young recalled Dr. King feeling a little bit better. On the way back to Memphis, he seemed to have overcome his uh, depression and was 
his old self again and was really teasing us and joking and um, and I mean there was no there was no fear or anxiety on his part. When their plane landed at the Memphis Municipal Airport, Ernest Withers was there, camera in hand, ready to meet them. He took a photo of King with his aides, Ralph Abernathy and Bernard Lee. All of them are dressed in white shirts and they're wearing dark suits. King opened the door to a waiting Buick and they all headed downtown. They checked into Memphis's Black-owned Lorraine Motel. King was in room 306. Dr. King and his allies were worried about that group of disenchanted, militant Black youths in Memphis, the group that many had blamed for the violence that broke out during the march a few days earlier. Their official name was the Black Organizing Project, the BOP, but everyone in town called them the Invaders. They denied any involvement with the violence, but King knew that if he wanted to be sure that his next march stayed peaceful, he needed to control these guys. There was a group of invaders who were also staying at the hotel. The SCLC offered to pay for a couple of rooms for their leaders. One of the invaders, John Smith, was staying just down the hall from King in room 315. But even though the SCLC was paying their bill, it was clear that many of the movement leaders didn't want anything to do with the invaders. Here's John Smith. Their whole thing is to try and convince Dr. King not to bring us in. We'll give civil rights a bad name. We were irresponsible. We were undisciplined. We couldn't be trusted like they could be trusted. But King wanted these young militants on board. He arranged to have lunch with them that afternoon. It was not a formally structured meeting, except we knew we had to meet these guys. We had to have them understand what a nonviolent protest looks like and why it must come from the nonviolent uh, perspective. And because they had had no training, they were just operating out of, uh, out of anger. John Smith remembers King entering the room wearing a suit, but no tie. I think Dr. King said something like... Uh, it was good to be here to meet you and uh, glad you could give me this kind of time or something like just, you know, small talk to get it started. We need you on our side, King told the young activists. But they complained back to him. The black leadership in Memphis didn't respect them. It wouldn't give them any role in the movement locally. King was sympathetic. He said he wasn't there to blame them for what happened during the last march. In fact, he hadn't even known there was a black power group in Memphis. He conceded that the preachers who had planned the last march had ignored them, and that that had been a mistake. Had he known that we were a group, he would have tried to meet with us and uh, to make sure that we were a part of things. He didn't blame them. He, by and large, said we should have come in and explained to you what we were trying to do. And if we had done that, you wouldn't have been caught up in this confusion and violence. So he was very conciliatory. And he wanted to know, you know, would we be willing to work with him in making sure that he had a peaceful march? King offered to make them parade marshals in the upcoming march. And he said that if they committed to remain nonviolent, he would have them work security for the Poor People's March that was coming up in Washington. But the invaders wanted something else. They were asking us for $40,000. 
And, uh, <laughs> you know, we, we laughed. And then Dr. King was explaining to them how we ran our budgets, how much his salary was, which was $6,000 a, a year from his church. On the eighth floor of the federal building in Memphis, FBI Special Agent Bill Lawrence was tracking King's arrival and then his ongoing interactions with the invaders. And to do so, he was using one of his best assets, photographer Ernest Withers. Ernest sent a constant stream of details about the strategy meetings at the Lorraine. They went on all day and late into the night. He told his handlers at the FBI that the motel was a beehive of activity. According to the reports, Ernest believed the invaders were trying to blackmail Dr. King. They wanted to give the impression that they could prevent any violence. He told Bill Lawrence that one of the invaders, Charles Cabbage, had said, Only he and his followers would have had the ear and confidence of the militant black youths in the community, and that if they were properly funded, they could keep the lid on. In other words, prevent violence. And then, according to the report, Ernest offered this commentary. Source 1 stated that Cabbage very definitely appeared to be trying to drop a pigeon on the SCLC. Drop a pigeon. That's slang for swindle. This is what Ernest said Cabbage was doing to the movement leaders. That this is a form of blackmail on his part, where he in effect is saying to them, give us money or we can't be responsible for any violence which might happen. Inside King's staff and among local movement leaders, there was a lot of concern over these negotiations. Ernest reported that people on King's staff lamented the fact that the meetings with the invaders, also known as the Black Organizing Project, were taking place at all. Ernest told the FBI that Maxine Smith of the local NAACP said that some of the invaders were, quote, too militant and too distrustful, and that Reverend James Lawson, who'd been organizing support for the striking sanitation workers from the start, was angry. Lawson made the comment, according to Source One, on April 3rd, 1968, that we had an excellent movement here and BOP, by its irresponsibility, can ruin it. He stated that all BOP does is beg money and to criticize and that it never offers anything constructive. Now, some people have accused the invaders of of blackmailing King. Right. That this was a threat in some way. Yeah. Edwina Harrell was the only woman leader in the Invaders. She was part of the group staying at the Lorraine Motel and meeting with Dr. King and his staff. Well, you see how that march went? If you don't, you don't pay up, see what's gonna, this is what's going to happen again. What do you make of that theory? Or, you, know, what, you were in the meetings. You were there. Yeah, it was always to put us outside of what they were doing. Never bring us in like Doc was wanting us to do. He always wanted us to be inside, a part of, because we had the energy, the youthfulness. We had the knowledge. We had, you know, the desire to do something positive for the community. And the old guard just wanted to keep it the same way. By late afternoon on the 3rd, it was getting dark. There was rain and thunder and heavy wind. Dr. King was supposed to speak at a rally that night, but he was exhausted. It was still only his first day in Memphis, and he had laryngitis. And I think that day he had a fever. 
because it started raining and he was decided he was going to stay in and not go to the mass meeting. So he sent Ralph Abernathy to address the crowd at Mason Temple, the headquarters of the International Church of God in Christ. Despite the bad weather, thousands of people had showed up to see Dr. King. The church was not only full, people were standing outside in the rain. The mood was quite good because to have that many people show up at a rainy rally was something to be joyous about. Billy Kyles was a prominent Memphis pastor and a member of King's National Board. He was there at the Mason Temple that night. Sanitation workers made an effort to dress up. They didn't want to go to church not dressed up. And we were reading scripture, we were singing songs, we were having people to what we call testify. Billy Kyles and the others were doing their best, but the crowd was calling for King. Ralph Abernathy stepped away and phoned King. Dorothy Cotton remembers that call. He said, Martin, you have to get over here because when the crowd in this church saw me, they went wild. The crowd went wild because they thought you were right behind me. King didn't hesitate. Okay, I'll come. He was tired, very, very tired. You can imagine how busy we were during this whole period. He was very tired. Wasn't dressed, wasn't shaved as he liked to be shaved, and you know, whenever he and, and all, you know, dressed. Um, but he got off the bed, got himself together, and said, "I need to get over to the church." King arrived at the church and made his way to the pulpit. Thank you very kindly, my friends. He started off slow. He had no notes. He spoke about the strike, about the need to come together. Now, I'm just happy that God has allowed me to live in this period to see what is unfolding. And I'm happy that he's allowed me to be in Memphis. Earlier that day, a judge had issued a temporary injunction blocking the march that King had planned for April 8th. But Dr. King said nothing would stop this march. So just as I say, we aren't going to let any dogs or water hoses turn us around. We aren't going to let any injunction turn us around. The intention Originally, it was just to make a few remarks and give, you know, encourage people to carry on. King started talking about life and near-death experiences, about a time when he was stabbed with a letter opener. That the tip of the blade was on the edge of my aorta, the main artery. Andrew Young and Billy Kyles said that King had talked about death before. In very dangerous situations, he quite often you know, made that kind of speech. So we didn't think there was anything unusual about it. And certainly didn't think it was in any way his last speech. Well, I don't know what will happen now. We've got some difficult days ahead. And he just reached back and got a lot of various different speeches he had made and brought it and brought it forward. And he said, I may not get there with you. But you will get to the promised land because God has allowed me to go up on the mountain and I've looked over and I've seen 
the promised land. May not get that with you? I may not get that with you. But I want you to know tonight that we as a people will get to the promised land. So I'm happy tonight. I'm not worried about anything. I'm not fearing any man. Mine eyes have seen the glory of the coming of the Lord. The audience exploded, leaping out of their seats. King turned from the pulpit. He looked exhausted, drained. And he couldn't walk to his seat. We had to physically lift him and take him to his seat. And we were all in tears. We knew something had happened. And we knew something was going to happen. Just ahead, April 4th, 1968. Top Thrill 2 is like no other course. Two 420-foot vertical speedways, three launches. All right, let's talk strategy. Copy that, driver. Go for maximum acceleration off the start. Measure that. You've got a short straightaway to push from 0 to 74 on the first vertical speedway. And what about the rollback? Rollback will set you up for an explosive reverse climb 420 feet in the sky so you reach 0 Gs in total weightlessness. 420 feet of straight-up speed. Let's get it. Top Thrill 2, the world's tallest and fastest triple-launch Stratocoaster. Get your tickets at cedarpoint.com. This is a big year. The Ohio Lottery's golden anniversary. 50 years of excitement, of growing jackpots and crossed fingers. 50 years of funding for schools, of changed lives and brightened days. 50 years of fun, and that is worth celebrating. So watch for can't-miss promotions, huge events, and new games that will make the Ohio Lottery's 50th year its biggest one yet. Learn more at funturns50.com. If a friend asks how you're doing, and you say, I'm okay. When the truth is, I don't want my problems to burden anyone. Or you say, Hang it in there. Because, If I ask for help, they'll just think I'm weak. Then this is your sign to call, text, or chat. 988 for free, confidential support. Anytime. You don't have to hide how you feel. Morning broke chilly and windy, but the rain had stopped. Here's John Smith. April 4th, I can remember, it was a beautiful day. One of the prettiest of that period, because it had been cloudy and hazy. But April 4th was sunshiny. On the morning of the 4th, Dorothy Cotton decided to return to Atlanta. The night before, Dr. King had asked for some food, and then he hadn't shown up to eat it. So my annoyance was, he didn't tell me, he didn't even call to say, I, I'm not coming to, you know, whatever. And I had to put, all, put this stuff together. And so now Dorothy was holding a grudge. She was feeling unappreciated. She planned to take a 1 p.m. flight. King called her to his room. He asked her to stay. And he kept saying, he said, Dorothy, you can get a later plane. And I said, uh, I really need to get this plane and 
And I did get that plane. Andrew Young was headed to court that morning. He was trying to get the injunction lifted so the march could continue. Ernest Withers was there too. He wanted to see what would happen. Sometime after 3 p.m. that afternoon, the judge announced he was lifting the injunction, and Ernest gave Andrew Young a ride back to the Lorraine. So I dropped him at the hotel and came back and was sitting in my office down there with my feet propped up in the chair because I was just you know, basically drugged and tired for being in the court all day long. Andrew Young walked into King's room to share the good news. Well, we marched. The judge gave us permission, sort of. And uh, the, the case went very good. And he was... He was more playful than I had seen him in years. And he said, where have you been? And I said... I've been in the courtroom. Why didn't you call me? I said, there's no phones. And I was on the witness stand. You have to find some way to let me know what's going on. And, and I said, come on now. You knew where I was. I, I don't know what I said that sparked it. But he picked up a pillow off the bed and threw it at me. And I threw it back. And everybody just sort of picked up pillows and started beating me up. Back in Atlanta, Dorothy Cotton's plane landed. Instead of heading straight to the office, she decided to go home. I get to Atlanta, and I realize that I'm absolutely exhausted because we had really worked. But because I was so tired, I decided to take a nap before I went down to the SCLC offices. John Smith said that he and Charles Cabbage knocked on King's door that afternoon. They went inside. They sat across from him on one of the beds. They told Dr. King that they couldn't organize without money. Dr. King made a phone call. He told the young men he'd gotten the okay to write a promissory note for $10,000. King took out his checkbook, and he told them, You can't cash it, but you can hold it to show that my intentions are good to help you get funded. And once we work out the details of how the funding mechanism will work, then, you know, it'll be good. Well, we go back to the room and we talk to everybody. We show them the check. And, of course, there's cheers all around. We did it. We got the money. We're going to get funded. We're going to be an organization that's doing something positive. And then somebody comes up from downstairs and says that SELC is no longer going to pay for the room. We got to vacate. John Smith and the other invader leaders checked out of their motel and headed back to the neighborhood. Dr. King started to get ready. They were supposed to go to Billy Kyle's house for dinner. Billy knocked on Dr. King's door around 5.50 p.m. And King joked with him about the menu for the night. I'm going to your house for dinner, but I don't want no filet mignon. I want some soul food. I said, okay, we'll have that for you. He followed Billy out to the balcony. Members of his staff were hanging out in the courtyard. He was standing here. I was standing there. He was greeting people 
across the banister, greeting people. Maud was leaning over talking to Jesse Jackson across the balcony. I said, guys, we have got to go. We have a rally tonight. It was beginning to get cool. And I said, I think you better go back and get a coat because the, the weather's changing. And it was like he lifted up his head to say, I don't think it's cold enough to be a coat. And, and then the shot rang out. I turned to go down the steps and I heard this noise. And because we were down there clowning, I thought it was a backfire of a firecracker or something. I mean, all I could see from the bottom was his shoes. I mean, it had knocked him out of his shoes. And his shoes were under the... I could see his shoes from the bottom, but I couldn't see him. So I ran up, and I realized that he'd been shot. The bullet pierced the side of his face. Blood oozed out, just oozed out. Blood was flowing. I couldn't believe what was happening. It was beyond my belief. I just, I could not believe what I was looking at. My reaction was, first reaction was, that you've gone to heaven and leaving us with all this hell. And, and my next reaction was, well, if anybody has earned a heavenly reward, you certainly have. But how are we going to carry on without you? I have no idea. I ran back in the room to call an ambulance. By that time, the police were coming. I hollered to the police, call an ambulance on your police radio. Dr. King has been shot. This is Ray Sherman, United Press International in Memphis. Memphis police report they have just confirmed that Reverend Martin Luther King has been shot. When the police arrived, Billy Kyles and the others were still standing on the balcony. The police called up to them. They said, where did the shot come from? So that famous picture of us pointing on the balcony of the motel. We all know that photo. Ralph Abernathy, Jesse Jackson, Billy Kyles, and a college student named Mary Louise Hunt, all standing on the balcony, arms outstretched, pointing in the direction of where the fatal shot had been fired. Andrew Young is there too, standing next to his mortally wounded friend. And another man was there, Merrill McCullough, who was actually an undercover police officer, posing as a member of the invaders. He's kneeling beside King, with one hand on the railing. Dr. Martin Luther King was received in the emergency room at St. Joseph Hospital, at approximately 6.15 p.m. He was pronounced dead at 7.05 p.m. 
as a result of a gunshot wound in the right side of the neck. Ernest was resting in his studio when the phone rang. The friend on the other end of the line told him to turn on the radio. Martin Luther King has been shot. For all of his unique access, for all of the time that Ernest had spent with Dr. King in those final days, he wasn't the one who took that historic picture on the balcony of the Lorraine Motel. Joseph Lowe, a South African journalist, was in Memphis making a documentary about the Poor People's Campaign and staying just a few doors down from King. When he heard the gunshot, he rushed outside, and he saw King's body on the balcony, just 40 feet away. As I looked at Dr. King, he would later recall, I could almost feel the wound myself. He grabbed his 35-millimeter camera and took some of the most famous news photos of the century. Even though Ernest wasn't the one to take that picture, he still ended up playing a critical role that night. In speeches and interviews over the years, he talked about the hours that followed the assassination. After hearing the news, he grabbed his own camera and ran over to the motel. That's where he met Joe Lowe, who wanted to get his film developed right away. He asked me for use of my lab, where he could come and develop the film. By now, the city was locked down. But Ernest had a friend in the local National Guard, and he was able to get Lowe back to his studio. I put him in the dark room, and the noise that he was making, which was not required, I knew he didn't know what he was doing. Lowe was a filmmaker, not a photographer. And he had jammed the film in the camera, trying to rewind it. Ernest had to take over. I had him to put the film in a box, went in and developed the two rolls of film, which were perfect. Ernest ran back to the motel and took photos inside room 306 where Dr. King had been staying. He photographed King's open briefcase, his shaving kit and clean change of clothes that remained in place, his copy of his own book, Strength to Love. On the balcony, he shot pictures of the pool of blood that was now dried across the concrete. This is blood left on the balcony from the shot that caused the assassination modern on the balcony, the Lorraine Hotel. Before leaving that balcony, Ernest scraped some of King's blood into a small vial and put it in his pocket. In Atlanta, a neighbor knocked on Dorothy Cotton's door. In the middle of my nap, and she said, Dorothy, Dr. King is dead. Somebody shot him. That's how I got the message. The same afternoon, he's saying, got a later plane Mm -hmm. to me. Again, I still hear him saying, Dorothy can get a later plane. She quickly dressed and rushed over to the King's home to be with his wife, Coretta. I remember getting myself in the house, and she was kind of back in the bedroom. I remember walking back to the bedroom and, and just, you know, just being with her. And uh, I remember that I talked with her a lot, you know, the week. So seals now zombie-like <laughs> going through, you know, really internalizing this, uh, what had happened to us. And I say to us because 
you know, our leader, our spokesperson, our friend was no longer with us. But in a way, he was. How did you find out that King had been shot? This is like one of the most epic times in my life. Edwina and the other invaders had left the Lorraine just before King had been shot. Before we could get three miles down the road, we turned the radio on and it said something about him being shot. And when we tried to double back, This wasn't even three minutes later. We tried to double back, and everything was blocked off. You couldn't—we even took the sideway back that we usually took, not the front way, but the back sideway. It was blocked. Everything was blocked. All we saw were people running up the stairs and shouting, And they wouldn't let us get any closer, so we went away. It was, I mean, to to see somebody, and five minutes later, they're dead. And like I said, at 19, I was shocked. It was not good. They were headed back to their homes, carrying a check for $10,000 they said had just been signed by Dr. King. Ernest left the Lorraine and headed across town to the R.S. Lewis funeral home. Went down in the basement level to the mall and went in there where Martin King's body lay. He was alone with Dr. King's body, which was lying on the embalming table. It was a horrific sight. The top of his head was gone. Ernest described the scene in a 2003 interview. And his skull was on the side. But they'd cut his head open and lay the left skull there. You know, I don't know how it was, but I put his skull back in his head. His head was full of paper. Ernest waited as the undertaker dressed King in a dark suit and covered his horrendous injuries. And then Ernest took pictures of King, laying in his casket. The death of Martin King ate my father alive. He was devastated. Roz Withers was just a kid, but she has very clear memories of her father at the time of King's assassination. I remember his devastation and him scraping his blood off of that concrete floor and putting it in a jar and bringing it home and putting it in our refrigerator, in our freezer. Really? My mom and him had the biggest fight over that blood being in our freezer because my father was so distraught. And and the jar broke in our freezer, and my mom was livid. But um, 
it, he, it, it devastated him. Why? Why was he so upset? Because of what Martin represented. He saw the things that Martin had accomplished in this country. As a journalist, he saw things before we saw them. We see them now because it's been, you know, recorded and rerun and, you know, but from a journalistic standpoint, he was on the front line watching it. He was seeing it. Thousands flowed through the rainy streets of Memphis this day, finishing a march that Dr. King planned to lead in support of striking garbage workers. On April 8th, tens of thousands of people silently marched through Memphis in honor of Dr. King. They were led by Coretta Scott King, the SCLC, and union leaders, and they were demanding that the mayor give in to the sanitation workers' request. Nearly two weeks later, city officials agreed, granting the workers raises and recognizing their union. About a month after King's death, more than 3,000 people from across the country traveled to Washington. They built a shanty town on the National Mall and named it Resurrection City. They staged nonviolent protests, just like Dr. King had planned. The invaders ended up helping to bring groups to Resurrection City. Although the money that King promised never materialized, John Smith said, we felt like we had to honor our promise to him. The event ended up being a disaster. It rained, which turned the whole thing into a muddy sinkhole, and the protest was largely ignored by Congress and the media. After six weeks, the campaign ended, and the movement continued to splinter. Critics of the nonviolent strategy grew in strength, and so the FBI gave Ernest a new assignment. No longer was he focused on the civil rights movement, but instead on the so-called extremist groups like the Invaders and the Black Panthers. Eventually, the FBI would succeed in destroying the Black Power movement. And based on records we've seen, Ernest ended his work as an informant in 1976. But its impact on his legacy was far from over. On the final episode of Unfinished, Ernie's Secret, Bill Lawrence is called to testify before a congressional committee. And so is Ernest Withers. And my father managed to talk to Ernest before he left to testify. And he, he told him that he wasn't going to tell him what to say. But if he wanted to tell the committee that he acted out of a sense of patriotism, that that would be good. This season of Unfinished is a co-production of Stitcher and Scripps. Our senior producer is Roy Hurst. The editor is Tracy Samuelson. Our show is written by Ellen Weiss. Executive producers are Camille Stanley and Ellen Weiss. Our music is composed by Edward Tex Miller. Mixing is by Casey Holford. Special thanks to reporter and author Mark Parasquia for sharing documents, sources, and his years of work on this story. Thanks also to the WGBH Archives. We had production help from McKenna Smith and Suzanne Reber. Our FBI documents were brought to life by actor Corey Landis. Fact-checking was by Kelvin Bias. Stitcher's vice president of content is Peter Clowney. If you like the show and believe in this kind of storytelling, 
please give us a five-star review on Apple Podcast. It'll help more people discover Unfinished. I'm Wesley Lowry. Thanks for listening. This is a big year. The Ohio Lottery's golden anniversary. 50 years of excitement, of growing jackpots and crossed fingers. 50 years of funding for schools, of changed lives and brightened days. 50 years of fun. And that is worth celebrating. So watch for can't-miss promotions, huge events, and new games that will make the Ohio Lottery's 50th year its biggest one yet. Learn more at funturns50.com.